All right. This morning we are reading a scripture that we, um, we all know pretty well, but I wanted to put it up here anyways. Um, some of you, about 25 of you gathered at my home this past Good Friday, but that means the rest of you did not. And so this might be the first time you've heard this scripture this year. And so let's, um, let's commit our hearts this morning to receiving it well. As Jesus was walking with the cross, Simon, a man from Syrian, Alexander and Rufus' son, was coming in from the countryside. They forced him to carry his cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means skull place. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. They crucified him. They divided up his clothes, drawing lots for them to determine who would take what. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The notice of the formal charge against him was written, the king of the Jews. They crucified two outlaws with him, one on his right and one on his left. People walking by insulted him, shaking their heads and saying, ha, so you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, were you? Save yourself and come down from that cross. In the same way, the chief priests were making fun of him among themselves together with the legal experts. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross. Then we'll see and we will believe. Even those who had been crucified with Jesus insulted him. From noon until three in the afternoon, the whole earth was dark. At three, Jesus cried out with a loud shout, Aloy, Aloy, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you left me? After hearing him, some standing there said, look, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, and put it on a pole. He offered it to Jesus to drink, saying, Let's see if Elijah will come to take him down. But Jesus let out a loud cry and died. The curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who stood facing Jesus, saw how he died, he said, This man was certainly God's son. Some women were watching from a distance, including Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger one, and, um, and Jose and Salome. When Jesus was in, Gal- in Galilee, these women had followed and supported him, along with many other women who had come to Jerusalem with him. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So... If you have been with us at all this series, you might feel like you have a little liturgical whiplash right about now. Last week, if you were here, it might have felt a little bit like a Christmas party. We talked a whole lot about Mother Mary last Sunday. In fact, this series um, might be whipping you around a bit because this week it might feel like Lent, maybe a little bit, a lot of it. We are singing a whole lot about the cross today. It feels like Lent. But you know, the, the creed kind of does that to you. It whips you around a bit from life to death, just like that. Have you ever noticed in the creed that we don't even take a breath? There is not a semicolon from birth to death. We believe in Jesus Christ's only son, our Lord, Breathe. 
who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, breathed all within one breath, life to death, just like that. The creeds kind of come under some heat for this very point, actually. As I mentioned earlier during the sermon, so during the children's sermon, there are people who say that the creed is less than helpful when we're talking about Jesus because it leaves out the entire life and entire ministry of Jesus altogether. I mean, what about the 5,000 uh, five he fed and, and the raising of Lazarus? Where is all of those good things in the creed? Well, we had to leave that stuff out. And yeah, I guess it's true. It's fair enough. But if we were here, if you were here with us at all during this series, you would know that last week we kind of redefined this word belief. The creed is not supposed to teach us all that we need to believe, but rather it's, it's supposed to show us who we are to be as Christians. It's an explanation of why we Christians live the way we do. And one of the peculiar things about Christians is that we live like we're dying. We were doing that long before Tim McGraw had a song about it. Christians have this weird way of living like death is a part of our natural experience. Now, I'm not just talking about the death that meets us in the grave. I'm talking about those thousands of deaths we die every day, every time we have to get up on Sunday for church, every time we're called to reconcile with someone we can't stand, every time you're called... um, to sell your possessions and give everything to the poor. Every time we die these little deaths, every time Jesus comes a-calling, there's a piece of us that has to die. And you don't even get to catch your breath as a Christian. Conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. Breathe. One of the earliest documents we have from Rome kind of castigating the early church is from a particularly nasty governor who was all about trying to eradicate the Christians from his area of Rome. And he's just livid in this letter. For some reason, he reports, these Christians You just can't squash them for some reason. No matter how violently, viciously you invade their camps, make examples out of their people, no matter how much you oppress them with unjust laws, no matter how much you push them down, even try to kill them, they just keep coming and they keep growing in number. And what is this, he says? As though death is not something they fear, but something they've already experienced and trust and know that God will see them through it. You Christians, you, you don't even catch your breath before moving on to suffering, crucifixion, and death. Christians die really unique, particular, and peculiar ways. I remember the first time I was in the room with someone as they died. It was about five years ago. I was like 26 years old at Duke Hospital. 
A nurse called the on-call room and said, come quick, it won't be long. And there was this 40-year-old woman who had a brain aneurysm earlier that week um, who was about to die. And so I smoothed out my collared shirt. (laughs) Got to get ready for this. (laughs) And I looked around the room, and I picked up my Bible, and I picked up my hymnal, and I picked up my prayer book and some anointing oil. And I rushed out the door like a paramedic on the way to some horrible accident. And I got down to the ward and I pumped the antibacterial soap like five, ten, fifteen times as a way of avoiding going into the room. I've got to get clean. I walked in and I'm like kind of shaking. I'm 26. Petrified. I had walked into rooms before when someone was ill And maybe death was on the horizon, perhaps, but it wasn't now. I'd walked into rooms where a body lay already cold and the family was gathered around. But this was the first time I knew that I would probably witness somebody die, take their last breath. Karen was laying in the bed and her breathing was just so slow If you've ever been in that space, you know the sound of that breath. It's so slow. It's almost gasping, and it feels like hours pass between breaths. And I walked in, and I ignored Karen. I couldn't handle that. I'm a people person. I hide behind my words, and so Karen didn't have much to say, and so I, I scared to death, go over to her daughter, who's over there knitting in the corner, and um. And I I strike up a conversation with her instead. And we talk for a little while. And then her daughter says, you know, perhaps, perhaps we should pray, Pastor. Right, right. That's what we do now. That, good, thank, yes. Okay, so let's pray. I put all my stuff down. I went over with my oil and she took her mom's hand and I took her mom's hand and I prayed a prayer, and I don't remember what it was. And at the end, her daughter said, Pastor, maybe we should sing a hymn. A hymn, yes. So I grabbed my hymnal. I asked for Karen's mother's favorite hymn, and it felt like an eternity as I thumbed through the pages trying to find where this hymn was located and And terrified, I began to sing. On a hill far away Stood an old rugged cross The emblem of suffering and shame And Karen's breathing got a little heavier And a little bit more spread apart And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. And Karen's breathing got a little slower. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross Till at last my trophies lay down. 
her breathing got a little slower. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. And as I was singing, I anointed her with the sign of the cross and Karen took her last breath. Somewhere around my trophies lay down, I think, And it was the first time in my 26-year-old brain where I realized that I was looking at myself. Someday I would be there, too. And nurses came in and started tending to her body. Her daughter and I stepped into the hallway at this point in time, and I was clearly and visibly shaken. I mean, the breath of somebody went out of their body as I was singing a hymn. (laughs) If I had never experienced Jesus so fully as I did in that moment. And she took my hand, the daughter, and noticing that I was trembling as I'm trembling right this second, she said, Pastor, my mother... My mother trusted Jesus with her life every day. I think today we can trust Jesus with her death. And that was the first time I understood what John Wesley meant when he said, we Christians, we die well. It was one of his claims to fame during the early Methodist movement. He said it over and over again. It's one of the things he bragged about Christians. You Christians, you you die well for some reason. Is that when it comes to death, whether it's one of the small deaths we die every day or the ultimate death that we face We Christians die well because we've lived our life every day trusting our lives in Jesus. And when it comes to that moment, we can hand over our death as well. I think it has something to do with this practice of professing the creed. We profess that we believe in crucifixion, suffering, death, burial, gone, dead as a doornail. We believe that death is central to how we live. And it all begins with our baptism. Have you ever noticed this really weird thing? Baptism, it's this really ironic thing because we throw parties and have cake for it, especially when we have a baby. Brand new life, wiggly, kind of squirmy in your arms. And we take this baby and we hold him over a font and people get around him and we speak this to him. Hey, baby. You're going to die. And we plunge him underwater. No, we just sprinkle. We sprinkle a little bit. Sometimes we plunge. And we say, at this moment, you're joined to the crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus. Ever notice that? And we put them in white clothes. And this also, this same cloth is used in our funerals. Have you ever seen a pall laid over a coffin? It's white. It's to symbolize our baptism that we are, being, we are dying and being raised with Christ. 
Christians, you people, you die well. I have a colleague who does this really creepy thing when he meets parents who want to baptize their children. Um, They bring the baby into the office, and he listens to them, and he coos with the baby a little bit, and then he takes him in his arms, and he says, well, you ain't getting out of here alive, so let's talk about baptism. This is not due to some fact that we Christians are somehow perversely morbid. (laughs) No, this hinges on the fact that we claim within one breath the same God, the eternal God, author, life, and salvation, you know, Jesus, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, is the same God who joins us in our suffering, death, and crucifixion. Christians are people who meet God even in death, or better words would be, or perhaps we should say Christians are people who have had God meet them even in their deaths. And like I said, it's not not just the ultimate death. It's when we have to die to ourself, dying to our own ego, dying to our will, dying to our greed, dying to our anger, dying to our notions of being wronged, dying to always having to be right, always dying. You know, when Jesus calls a man, Bonhoeffer says he bids him come and die. And some of my worst moments in pastoral ministry for the two brief years been in pastoral ministry are when I try to protect people from the cross. You know, I love you. I'm just crazy about you, and I don't want you to ever be hurt by me, and I'm a people pleaser, and so I always want you to like me and what we do here, and sometimes that gets in the way of me actually leading you to a crucified Lord. You know, that that email conversation where I act like it's been no big deal, that you haven't been to worship in eight weeks. I hope you can come next week. But you know, it's okay if you don't. It's fine. (laughs) I love you. I really want you to like me. That coffee date when you unveil to me how your life is in shambles and you're not sleeping and you feel like you have no friends who understand you. And I listen and I nod and I tell you how sorry I am. That must really be difficult for you. But I don't call out sin for sin as I hear it. And I don't beckon you out of the hell that everyone else can see that you're living in. Everyone but you. That comment in passing about how you wish you could give more to the church. But, you know, it's just too hard because i got all these other things I have to pay for. But I watch in silence as you buy things you don't need, luxurious lifestyles you can't afford. And I say to myself, Michelle, it's not your place. And it's like Jesus is looking down from the cross to say, Who told you it was your job to protect them from me? Maybe, maybe there are things in their lives and relationships that need to die, that need to crawl up on the cross and get crucified. And maybe, just maybe, Michelle, you're you're just in the way. 
Perhaps the number one task for me should be to ask you this as often as I possibly could utter it. What needs to die so that something new can happen in you? Christians live like we're dying so that we can find new life. When we stand and profess the creed within one breath that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, we are hanging our lives on resurrection. If this is the only thing you take home today, this is the thing. Christians do not believe in resuscitation. To resuscitate is to revive something or someone who's on the brink of dying. To revive, to revive something that was. Christians are not trying to resuscitate an old way of being or doing. We are not into resuscitating relationships gone wrong. We are not into resuscitating dreams. We never did. We are not into resuscitating plans that, were gone, that gone awry. We're not into that stuff. We're not into resuscitating some semblance of the control we used to have over our lives. No, Christians believe in resurrection, and the only way to find resurrection is to go through the grave, the cross, to die, dead as a doornail. That has to happen first. That's why we call what happened on Golgotha, the story that we read today, that's why we call it Good Friday. Have you ever wondered that? doesn't seem good. Because we believe that the living God even inhabits our graves. That's good news. That is the fullness of God's goodness on display for us to see and to share and to believe. We believe he suffered, was crucified, died, and buried, and we Christians follow him there a thousand times. And then finally, one last time, we meet there the God who continually, continually is dying to be with us.